What's up everybody? I've been out for a couple weeks, was moving, got sick, had a lot to deal with, but the first two weeks of college football are in the books. LSU's now going to beat Bama, psych. Two SEC, t- SEC playoff teams, psych. Uh, the Pac-12 is done, psych. And one thing that is true is Florida State is in big trouble. Let's get into it. And it was BYOG, bring your own guts! Fourth and five, the national championship on the line. Got the big man. I think Notre Dame got it on Put it on the board for Bama. Country pulls free. The Hitler's got it on the deflection. Mercy's got to score. It's picked off. Breaks free, they won't catch him, I don't believe. Fires to the end zone. Touchdown! He's going for the corner. He's got it. There goes Davis. Oh, my God! Davis! It's caught! It's caught! It's caught! Was that a good game or what? What's going on, everybody? Michael Kirkering here. Let's Talk College Football Podcast. I'm back. Um, sorry about the delay. I've been moving. I'm, for those that don't know, I moved from Oregon down to Sarasota, Florida. Happy to be here. Um, then I got sick last week, got this crazy flu. Um, I'm still dealing with the fallout of that, but I'm all good now. I think that I got sick watching the Florida State-Boise State game week one because literally as soon as the second half of that game started, I started to get a scratchy throat and it all went downhill from there. So it's possible that my health is linked to the Seminoles, in which case it's going to be a bad year for me physically. But in all seriousness, let's try to go over everything that's happened. You know how this podcast works. I'm not going to break down matchups. I'm not going to talk about every win and loss. There's plenty of other podcasts out there for that. There's Twitter. There's there's all these other people. I kind of just respond to issues and things that I think are important. And, of course, I love history. So later in the podcast, we're going to go down memory lane because we were blessed to have an amazing non-conference home-and-home matchup in that LSU-Texas game. It was phenomenal, had a great time watching that, and it just reminded me of some of the games in the past that I grew up watching. And the same can be said about week one. We did have one amazing classic kickoff game, neutral site game, that was the Oregon-Auburn game. And honestly, the start of college football would never be complete if we didn't get at least one really good kickoff classic at a neutral site. You guys know I'm not a fan of these neutral site games, but I don't mind a couple of them in week one. I just don't like there being... 50 of them and us losing the home and homes and the other thing that's great about the early first two to three weeks of college football are these non-conference home game matchups i absolutely love those it's my favorite part about college football is when you have two big brands from separate conferences that don't play each other very often and then they play a home and home series over the course of two years absolutely love it kickoff games have nothing on those matchups in my opinion Even if the games are lopsided, it's still just fun. Let's get into those two games and kind of the fallout from them. So let's go back to week one. You had Oregon playing Auburn in Dallas. A couple of my buddies went to that game. I was really jealous. I would have loved to go to that game, especially, you know, Oregon's like my second team. That's where I graduated from. And I talked about in my last podcast, what, two and a half, three weeks ago almost, that this game was very important for both teams, but 
I think that people are now overhyping how important it was for Oregon. The game was extremely important for Auburn, as I said before, because they have two or three losses on their schedule. Unless they are just the second coming this year, and it's like 2010 all over again, and they're going to come out of nowhere, and they're one of the top three to four teams in the nation, that game was very important because they're probably going to lose two to three games this year. Their schedule's just too hard. Um, for those that weren't paying attention, they end, they play Oregon to start the year. They play Georgia this year. They play Florida this year. They play Alabama this year. A couple other tough SEC games. I think even Texas A&M, that's who they play pretty soon, actually. So Auburn's going to lose some games. It's just inevitable. So if they were to start the season 0-1 against the Pac-12 team before any of those SEC games, you can see how they'd be in a lot of trouble, especially when you consider how Auburn fans are with Gus Malzahn. It seems like that guy could never do enough to please them. I've talked before about how I think Auburn fans are extremely unrealistic given the fact that Nick Saban's still at Alabama, and I think Auburn has done a great job this decade. For, for a second, let's just break down what Auburn's done this decade. Um... Not all of this was Gus Malzahn, obviously, but in 2010, they won a national championship, won a national championship, kind of, you know, the pinnacle prize, the thing that you try to do in college football. They won a national championship, had a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. Yeah, they had two mediocre seasons out of that, one of them being really bad. Then in 2013, they bounce right back. They have a tremendous season, probably the most fun season any Auburn fan has ever had watching games. They go back to the national championship game. They barely lose in a nail-biter classic to Florida State, one of the most classic national championship games there's been out in the Rose Bowl. 2014, they have a pretty decent year. They lose, I think, maybe three or four games, but they they were fun. The Ole Miss game that year was so fun. The Alabama game that year, even though they lost, was fun. Uh, Auburn was a fun team in 2014. 2015, they, they were okay. They weren't that great. Still winning record. You know, in the SEC, SEC West, mind you, back when it was the toughest division in college football, and it's and it arguably still is. And then 2016, you know, they're they're coming back still again, like a seven and five, eight and four team. 2017, they had a great year. Yeah, they had to play like the top two teams in the country like three times. So they they only went to a Peach Bowl. They did lose to UCF, but that was a great Auburn team based on the schedule. And then. And last year they were okay too, obviously not living up to, you know, fans' expectations. But, like I said, what what more do you want, Auburn? Nick Saban's at Alabama. You're in the SEC West. So, anyway, that, that, that no point in getting off into that rant. That's just dumb. But let's go to Oregon now for a second because everybody's saying that the Pac-12 is done, the Pac-12 is out because Oregon lost that game. And I think that that is just a dumb, stupid take to have. The Pac-12 is not done based on one game. People forget, the whole point of scheduling these big non-conference games is you can lose them. That's the whole point, is it's not a huge risk because if you win, it's awesome. You really set yourself up for success going forward the rest of the season. But if you lose, now it's got to be close, but if you lose, you're still okay. Now, everybody thinks that the Pac-12 is done because of, of that, and I just don't understand that. If Oregon goes 12-1, and wins the Pac-12, there's an 80% chance they will make the playoff. Okay, just accept that, people. It's going to happen like that. Now, you could argue that Oregon 
and maybe some of these other Pac-12 teams don't necessarily control their own destiny, being the fact that they're in the weakest conference, even though I would argue the ACC is in way worse shape than the Pac-12, because I don't judge conferences based on their playoff contenders. I judge them based on the bottom and the middle and how competitive that is. But we'll get to that later. Back to Oregon, back to the Pac-12. If Oregon goes 12-1, and let's say, wins the conference championship, the only way they get left out is if the other four conferences also have champions that are 12-1 and or better, or if Notre Dame is sitting out there possibly undefeated. Okay, an 11-1 LSU team does not jump a 12-1 Oregon team. I know on paper that LSU team's probably better, and I know you guys are yelling at your screen right now, or yelling at your speaker at me saying, uh, four best teams, four best teams. I get it. I know it's kind of supposed to be the best four teams. I'm not saying that Oregon going 12-1 and would be one of the best four teams. I'm just saying how college football has worked from the beginning of time, in the BCS era, and now. The playoff committee has completely messed with everybody's heads and created this false illusion for all of these different people that, oh, we could have three SEC teams in. We It's all about the four best teams. It is, but it isn't, guys. Just look at history. It always repeats itself. Go back to last year. If the committee really cared about the best four teams, they would just go to Vegas and Georgia would have got in last year. Because Vegas had Georgia as like a 13-point favorite over Notre Dame, in a hypothetical situation, obviously, after the regular season was over. But guess what? The committee said, yeah, we're not leaving out an undefeated Notre Dame. We don't care that Georgia's probably better. And then, of course, Georgia proved everybody wrong when they got their butts kicked by Texas in the Sugar Bowl. That does matter. That does matter, people. And I don't even need to focus this rant on Oregon. Watch out for the Pac-12. The Pac-12 is going to be more entertaining than I think the Big 12 and the ACC this year, okay? Washington, Oregon, Utah, and now even USC, those four teams are all playoff contenders as we sit today. And even Washington State is sitting out there. I never trust them to really be a playoff contender, but they're definitely a Pac-12 contender. Utah, I think, is the best team in the Pac-12 as of right now. And guys, I kind of thought USC was done after JT Daniels tore his ACL. You know, I was consulting my fiance. She was very upset about that. But we sat and watched that Stanford game the other night. And I got to tell you, this other quarterback looks pretty good. Now, we don't know how good Stanford is. Their quarterback was out too. But Stanford always has a solid defense. They're always well coached. They're always usually in good position. And that quarterback kind of picked him apart, especially there in the second half. USC has athletes. So USC's a contender, Utah's a big-time contender, Oregon's legit, and Washington's always out there legit. They're the best coach team in the Pac-12. So do not sleep on the Pac-12, and any of those teams could lose one game and still make the playoff, in my opinion. Not control their own destiny, but could still make the playoff, okay? This transitions into my second point, which is I keep seeing... People on Twitter and even people all over ESPN now talking about these scenarios where these multiple SEC teams get in. And I just think it's so dumb to even be suggesting that stuff this early in the season. 
Um, the best tweet I saw about it, Heather Dinich, who, by the way, I love Heather Dinich. She's one of my favorite college football reporters, always has been for like over a decade now. But she tweeted out yesterday, what if LSU's only loss is to SEC champ Bama? What if LSU and Georgia only lose to SEC champ Bama? What if Bama's only loss is to SEC champ LSU? We'll see how long it lasts, but the door is wide open in the SEC for two teams again, at least as we sit here in September. No, I don't think the door is wide open, Heather, and let me tell you why. I un- Like I said, I understand where these people are coming from because this whole playoff era has confused people where they think conference championships don't matter, records don't matter, it's all about this eye test and the four best teams, and I just don't think that's true. I'm not saying it should or shouldn't be that way. Don't. This isn't me trying to spat my opinion I'm not a Pac-12 defender, guys, okay? I literally grew up on the West Coast as a Florida State fan, as a Southern football fan. I spent almost my entire life talking shit to Oregon Duck fans, to Pac-12 fans, talking about how that conference is weak, how they just don't understand football on the West Coast. So I don't know why I'm suddenly put in a situation where I'm defending the Pac-12, but here we are, okay? If you're one of the like 12 people that actually consistently listens to this podcast, you're probably so annoyed of me because all I do is kind of make this point, but I'm going to make it once again. When it comes to the committee selecting playoff teams, it's pretty much no different than the BCS era, than the AP poll. Record trumps everything. Speaking for Power 5 conferences, record trumps everything, okay? If you're undefeated, you get in. And the only way an undefeated Power 5 team gets left out is if there's five of them and they have to leave one of them out, okay? In that scenario, you could see how, let's say you've got an undefeated Clemson. Well, they're in, obviously. An undefeated SEC team, they're in. An undefeated Big 12 team, they're in, probably. And then, okay, the Pac-12, maybe they would get left out because they'd be viewed as the weaker of those undefeated teams, let's say. So that's the only scenario where an undefeated conference champion gets left out. And like I said, you can move it on down the line. Let's say everybody goes 12-1. and Then maybe the Pac-12 gets left out. It just would depend on the weaker champion. But the idea that a 12-1 and conference champion from any conference would ever get leaked at the end of the season by an 11-1 and non-conference champion, I don't care how many good teams that team has played, it's just not going to happen, guys. If it came down to the end of the season and you had, let's say, Clemson's undefeated, they're in. So just forget about Clemson. Clemson's in. Okay, then let's say Alabama wins the SEC and they're undefeated. Okay, well, they're in. Now let's say those are the only two undefeated teams and everybody else has at least one loss, okay? And let's say of all those remaining teams with one loss, the teams that are competing for those other two spots, let's say you have Ohio State is sitting at 12-1 and and they're a Big Ten champion. Then let's say you got Oklahoma is also 12-1 and as a Big 12 champion. And then let's say Oregon is out there 12-1 and as a Pac-12 champion. And then you have like an 11-1 and LSU team or a 12-1 and Georgia, let's say. Guess what, guys? Georgia and LSU wouldn't even be considered in that scenario because they're not going to leave out conference champions that have the same record as a team that didn't even win their conference. I know the SEC is the best. I know that on paper, maybe LSU and Georgia would beat all those other champions, 
But that's just not how college football works. It's never worked that way. I kind of agree with that. But even if you don't agree with that, at least accept that that's the reality. Until I actually see the committee say, you know what? No, we think this 11-1 LSU team is just better than these other conference champs with the same record. I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to believe it. Because I've never seen it happen, and I honestly don't think it will happen, nor do I really think it should happen. I don't think you can leave one of these conference champions at home if they have the same record as a team that didn't win their conference. That's just not fair, and it's never been how college football works. So, if that hypothetical scenario were to happen, Georgia and LSU wouldn't even be in consideration. They'd be deciding if Ohio State, Oklahoma, and Oregon... Which one of those two, three teams takes those last two spots? So you'd have the undefeated Clemson probably get the one seed. You'd have the undefeated Bama probably get the two seed or, or flip-flop. You know, that would happen. And then it would come down to we have three other teams we're looking at. All conference champions all have the same record. Now we can start to look at things like strength of schedule. Who you played? Who did you lose to? What did that loss look like, right? And in that scenario, I think Auburn, I mean, I mean sorry, Oregon would be looking pretty okay because as long as Auburn doesn't have like a 6-6 six and six season, that's going to be a good loss for Oregon. Even if Auburn goes 8-4 and four and looks competitive in all their games, like I said, Auburn's schedule is really tough, but they're a respectable team. There's nothing wrong with losing to them week one in a nail-biter, especially when the perception of that game was Oregon had most of the control. It's embarrassing that they let it slip out. Typical freaking Oregon, right? But that's just kind of how this thing works, guys. So just accept that. I'm so sick of having to talk about this, but it seems like every year I'm proven right at the end of the year, but then going into the next year, everybody acts like, oh, this this crazy scenario can happen, right? I love Clay Travis. He's probably one of my favorite uh, sports guys on Twitter and just in general right now, but I saw him you know, put out a video where he was like, look, guys, if Alabama and Georgia meet in the SEC championship game and they're both undefeated, they're both guaranteed a playoff spot. And I just don't think that that's true. I don't think they're guaranteed a playoff spot. I would say that if you're just projecting, there's a very, very good chance that if that happens, there's enough chaos that would go on in the other conferences that would allow them to both get in. But you can't just sit here in September and say, if Georgia and Alabama are undefeated in the SEC championship game, then they both are guaranteed in a spot. No, I think it still matters what's going on with the other conferences. And if Georgia becomes a 12-1 team without a conference championship, they're not getting in over other 12-1 conference champions because the conference championship is a tiebreaker. It's a tiebreaker. And I don't think the committee really has the right to say, you know what? We just consider this 12-1 Georgia team better than this 12-1 Oklahoma team. That's just too subjective. You can't make those subjective claims. So many times in the past, we've thought that that should happen, and we've been proven wrong. One of my favorite examples is 2006. If you look at 2006, Ohio State and Michigan were the two best teams in the country. It wasn't even close. And when they played each other, everybody said, that is the national championship game. That's the game. And everybody wanted a rematch because those were the best two teams. Those were the best two teams. Well, the BCS, thank God, said, you know what, Michigan, you had your chance. You're going to go to the Rose Bowl. 
and Ohio State, you're going to play this 12-1 Florida team out of the SEC. Now, what happened in the postseason that year? Florida boat raced Ohio State in the national championship game, just destroyed them. Looked not in not the way Clemson beat Bama this year. It looked like if they played 10 times, Florida would have won all 10. They controlled offense. They controlled the defense. They did whatever they wanted to in that game. They were faster, stronger, just a better team, more well-prepared going to that game. And that was the start of the SEC run at national champions. And what also happened to Michigan that year is they went to the Rose Bowl and they got beat down pretty bad by USC. So guess what the final standings were that year? Florida won, USC two. Can you imagine if we would have had a four-team playoff that year where Ohio State played Florida in the semi and Michigan played USC in a semi? The national title would have been Florida-USC. Those were the two best teams that year. But because of the hype around the regular season in that Michigan-Ohio State game, no one even considered that as a possibility, right? Nobody was picking Florida to beat Ohio State that year because Ohio State was the team that year. Troy Smith at Heisman, you know, all the, all the players on offense, Teddy Ginn, Anthony Gonzalez, all these guys, but we got proven wrong. Same thing with last year. Georgia was so upset they didn't make the playoff. They thought they were the better team. Well, guess what? If you think you're the better team, you go and you whoop Texas in the Sugar Bowl and you prove us wrong. But guess what? Texas kind of whooped up on Georgia in the Sugar Bowl, proving me right. And no, you can't use the argument, oh, well, Georgia just didn't show up in that game because... They were they were sad about being left out, so they didn't show up. Part of being good is mentally showing up and respecting your opponent and beating them, regardless of where you think you should be. A real Georgia team that thought they should have been in the playoff would have showed up and smoked Texas, but instead, they let Texas have all the mind power. Texas comes into that game, and they show, hey, we belong. We're for real. If you're unsatisfied as a player, a coach, or a fan with going to a Sugar Bowl and having the chance to win a Sugar Bowl, then you don't even know what college football is about. I understand that the main prize is the playoff and a national championship, but this isn't the NFL. It isn't Super Bowl or bust. That's not how college football works. It's never been that way, and I hope it never does become that way. I've already talked about how one of the downsides to the playoff is they're kind of undercutting the importance of these other games. Winning a Rose Bowl is awesome. Winning an Orange Bowl is awesome. Obviously, winning the national championship is better, but if you aren't satisfied, the only program that maybe can be unsatisfied with that is Alabama right now because they've been so good over the last decade. They've won so many national championships. They've made all the playoffs that I can understand that if Alabama this year lost two games and went to a Sugar Bowl, that might be a little disappointing for them. Any other program has no excuse to be dissatisfied with going and winning a Sugar Bowl or something, okay? That there's, just, there's just no excuse for it. Your mind's in the completely wrong place. Go be an NFL fan full-time if that's the way you feel. As a Florida State fan, I can tell you I would give anything to have a 9-3 and regular season and go back to an Orange Bowl. That would be amazing because we're terrible right now. And now let me segue into that. Let me talk to my FSU fans, talk to FSU Twitter, because everybody's so freaking out, rightfully so, and I'll be honest, I was not one of these people that was totally like fire tiger, fire tiger last year. I, I think you do have to give a coach at least two years, three is probably fair, but that coach has to show improvement. 
and let's not even get into what Jimbo Fisher did and how the program was left because I don't judge Willie Taggart and Florida State at all based on what he was given. Yeah, he was given shit from Jimbo Fisher. The program was left a mess, but it's his job to improve. And the scariest thing about last year was we didn't get better throughout the season. You could almost argue that we got worse. And yeah, go, so far this year, it does look like the offense is a little bit better, right? We have a little bit better play calling. Our rhythm is a little better. We are scoring a little more. But as a team, we look like we're just as bad as last year. And that's the scary thing. I honestly believe that this Virginia game is going to define Willie Taggart's career at Florida State. If he doesn't win this game and we get blown out, which I unfortunately think is going to happen, then I think there's no way that he bounces back. I don't really know where I stand because part of me is like, you can't fire a coach in the middle of his second year. That just doesn't make sense. Also, Florida State can't afford it, but that's besides the point. But I'm also one of these people that's like, look, if you know it's not going to work, and I've always been a proponent of like, hey, you got to be careful when you get rid of a coach and why you get rid of a coach, right? For example, if you are Tennessee back when Philip Fulmer was there, I think that was a mistake to get rid of him, right? He was constantly giving you winning seasons. They just weren't quite up to your lofty expectations. So you just fire him because, no, well, we want national championships and he's not going to get that done, it doesn't seem. So let's just get rid of him and go for the next guy. That's how you end up becoming terrible for years on end, okay? What Texas A&M did made a lot of sense, right? They were sick and tired of these eight and four seasons, but they didn't just fire Sumlin just because of that. They said, look, there's this guy Jimbo Fisher out there that will take us over the top and he's willing to come here. Now we'll get rid of our eight and four coach because we know we can replace him with the guy that's proven to possibly get us to the, to the championship level that we want to be, okay? So let's say Florida State, let's say this was three years down the line and Willie Taggart was the new Kevin Sumlin. He was always going eight and four. There'd be all these people that would want him fired. Oh, we need to get over the hump. And I would be saying, we're not just going to fire him unless we know there's a coach out there that will come in that's better than him. But when you're as bad as they are now with no signs of improvement, we're already, I think, dangering on like a three and nine type of season, possibly. If that happens, then I think you can move on because at the end of the day, nothing, you know, that is the bottom. It doesn't get worse than that. And FSU Twitter has been crazy and people are arguing and, and debating all these things. And I, I don't know how I feel. I'm just, I'm just not even going to get into it too much because there's just no point right now. I will say, though, I do think this Virginia game is going to be a defining game because we're about to literally have a repeat time machine version of last year. Think about it. Going into 2018, Florida State, okay, we have some hype, and we had a pretty big opening game against what we thought was going to be a good opponent, Virginia Tech, Labor Day. I was there, right? And we got slapped in the face. And like I said, one of the scariest parts about that game for me as a fan and, and evaluating Willie Taggart is he looked so shocked that that happened. When your head coach is blown away at the fact that you lost a game and that the talent isn't where he thought it was, that's scary, and that says a lot about him, okay? Then, what happened? We played a group of five school at home. It was Samford last year, and that game was close. We almost lost it, right? And then, we played our, first, our next conference opponent, 
on the road at Syracuse and we got spanked. We're literally about to see a repeat of the beginning of last year happen this year. We had an opener against a respectable opponent. Mind you, we looked better than we did against Virginia Tech last year on offense, but we lost. It was embarrassing, especially the way it went down. Okay, second game, group of five school. This time it's Louisiana Monroe, and it's even closer than it was against Sanford last year. We won in overtime because a kicker missed an extra point. That's the only reason we won. Now, we've got this Virginia game on the road, and it's looking like it's going to be just like the Syracuse game last year. And I'm telling you, if we get blown out at Virginia, then I do think it's time to move on from Willie Taggart. I'm not saying they would have to fire him like right then and there, but I just don't see how we would bounce back. It would be the fourth year in a row that our season is over in September. September. And that's just not going to cut it for Florida State fans. And when you look at us play, we looked poorly coached, okay? Look at Tennessee. They're in a bad situation, too. They have a worse record, but I would honestly argue that we're in even a worse spot when it comes to the coaching of the program, okay? When I watch Tennessee lose to Georgia State, as embarrassing and terrible as that's got to be for the Tennessee fans, it was more about them kind of getting dominated on the line of scrimmage. And Tennessee just doesn't have a lot of talent right now, I don't think. Especially in some of the skill position players, at least not compared to Florida State. And, you know, Tennessee lost to BYU, but BYU is a decent, decent school right now. And it went to overtime. And Tennessee sometimes gives up some big plays when they shouldn't. And some of their in-game coaching decisions don't seem like the best. But when it comes to the Florida State players, they look like they just haven't been coached at all. Like like fundamentals of the game of football, right? It's like when you see a youth team that doesn't even know what tackling is or something, right? Like th on defense, they just look like they don't know where they're supposed to be. They're giving up runs left and right. And Florida State has recruited at a much higher level than Tennessee has like the whole past decade. Florida State does have four-star guys all over the field. So either everybody at ESPN and 24-7 Sports and Rivals is just super dumb or the Florida State coaches don't know what the heck they're doing. I think you got to go with the coaches don't know what they're doing. To me, this is not even comparable to like some of the lost decade teams, right, that Florida State fans talk about because those teams just straight up lacked talent. But outside of some of the Jeff Bowden stuff, they weren't terribly coached, right? They just sometimes weren't good, right? And we'd have six and six seasons. And and, and it was bad then, and they weren't as good of coaches as they should have been, but it didn't look like this. These are players that are better than a lot of those teams playing significantly worse. But whatever, I'm, I'm done talking about Florida State's troubles. Let me talk about more positive. On a positive note, I'm going to this Virginia game this weekend, and I'm and I'm super excited. The game might be lopsided, whatever. When, when I'm there, I'll be rooting as a fan. I'm always going to root for my team in the moment, in the game. I'm going to get caught up in it. But as a college football fan, I love going to different venues. And when I was looking at the Florida State schedule this year, of all the away games that I could have gone to, it was either this one or Clemson, and I've already been to Clemson once before, and most likely they're going to kill us this year. So 
I picked Virginia because, you know, who knows when Florida State will play in Charlottesville again. They're a cross-division opponent, and we only play them, I think the last time we did play them was 2011 at home. I'm not even sure the last time we played in Charlottesville. I'd have to go look back on the schedule, but we're playing Virginia in Charlottesville. My fiance and I are going. Super excited. Can't wait to see the town. Um, the next day, we don't even fly home until like 7 p.m., so we just get to hang out in Charlottesville. A lot of history there. I'm a huge history buff, so want to see like maybe some old Civil War sites or just do some things in the town. If you have any suggestions, email me, let me know. But I'm really, really looking forward to that. It's going to be fun. If any other Knowles fans are going to be there and want to meet up, I'd be more than happy to. Let's get some beers Saturday night or something. Let's do it. All right, now I want to do some college football history diving based on the LSU-Texas game. Now, I had so much fun watching that LSU-Texas game. It's it's funny. It's actually a matchup I've fantasized about like five, six years ago. I remember thinking, oh, you know, it would be a really cool non-conference matchup, LSU and Texas. That would just be so cool. And when I saw this game get released on the schedule, I think it was a couple years ago, I remember going, wow, I really hope that Texas is back for that game so that that's a big hyped game. And sure enough, it was and we got everything I asked for. I didn't really care who won. I just wanted an epic non-conference game to happen, and that's exactly what we got. It was such a fun game. I actually was watching the Florida State game at a sports bar up the street because, of course, half these networks don't have ACC network yet, so the only way for me to watch that embarrassing Florida State game was to go up to a sports bar up the street. And I left in the middle of the third quarter because I was like, you know what, I would much rather catch the start of LSU Texas then watch us barely hold on to beat Louisiana Monroe because at the end of the day I'm a college football fan more than I am a Florida State fan I think so I just couldn't miss the start of that game I had to experience the whole thing from start to finish and it, and it was great and it got me thinking of just some of the great non-conference games in the past and I, I wanted to go through some of them with you guys just some memory lane so one of the first big-time non-conference regular season matchups I remember was the 2005 Texas-Ohio State game. That was Vince Young for Texas. Texas was number two. Ohio State was number five. This game was in the horseshoe night game. Great, great game. Brett Musburger and Gary Daniels were on the call. This is when Gary Daniels was still with ABC Sports. And it was a back-and-forth game. There were times when it looked like Ohio State had it. Then there were times where it looked like Texas had it. Long story short, Texas goes down the field and Vince Young throws a dime touchdown pass to Lima Swede in the end zone to kind of seal the deal. I literally remember that like it was yesterday. One of the first big non-conference games I remember watching. And the implications of that game were huge because I think that was Ohio State's only loss that year. Or, or no, I think they lost to Penn State, so they were like 10-2. and two. Um, and then Texas, you know, goes undefeated, goes to the national title against USC where we have that classic. And if they lose that game, that might not have happened. So that game was super fun to watch and ended up being a big deal. In 2006, I'll never forget the Oklahoma versus Oregon game in Eugene, mostly because of the ending. I don't know if any of you guys remember that game. I'm sure Oregon fans do. It's a classic for Oregon fans. But Oregon won because they got the benefit of probably one of the worst calls in college football history. Let's go through the last couple minutes of the game. So Oregon was down 33-20 to 20 with about two minutes left, and they have the ball, and they're driving. 
and they go down the field, and Dennis Dixon runs in about a 16-yard touchdown with, I think, like a minute 10 left on the clock. So now the score is 33-27, to 27, and there's like just over a minute left in the game. Oregon lines up for an onside kick, of course, because they need the ball back. So they kick the ball, and, and they recover it, and it's crazy, and there's mayhem, right? Oregon gets the onside kick. Well, as soon as they show the replay, it's obvious, clear as day, that an Oregon player touches it before it goes 10 yards. At a right about 9 yards, an Oregon player touches it, and then it's recovered by Oregon in, in a scuffle. This play is reviewed, and then the ref comes out and says there's that there's video evidence that the receiving team touched the ball and made it live. When you can watch that replay, I don't care if you're a Duck fan or not. I was rooting for Oregon in this game. I'm a kid. I'm a huge Duck fan. But it was so obvious that the Oregon guy touched it before it went 10 yards. And even after a review, they give the ball to Oregon. And about two plays later, Dixon throws a dime up the middle to Brian Pacinger, I think, who scores a touchdown with like 45 seconds left or something like that. And Oklahoma still, after all that, had a chance to go win the game. They got down in field goal range, and then they miss a field goal. That's how Oregon won. It was a classic, but tons of controversy. And I'll always remember that game. Uh, 2007, California versus Tennessee in Cal. This was week one, and it was a good game. They were both ranked. This is when Tennessee was still you know, a decent program, and, and Cal was pretty good during these years too and i'll never forget you know deshaun jackson just going off in that game he had one touchdown and he had this crazy punt return that was just phenomenal and it was definitely i mean he was already an established player in college football that by then but for me as a kid i wasn't quite familiar with who he was and that game i just remember going like wow that is a crazy awesome player and then of course you know everything he did in the nfl after that 2009 I'll never forget that USC-Ohio State game. The year before, they played the game in uh, L.A., and USC beat down Ohio State. But in 2009, USC was number three, Ohio State was number eight. I really loved the Jim Trussell-Ohio State teams. I was a big fan of them back then. And, of course, I hated USC. That USC was like the Alabama back then. They were always winning. And I remember USC was starting a freshman quarterback. It was Matt Barkley who was great, but this was his first big road start, you know, on the road in the horseshoe. And the game went back and forth. It was really good, but Matt Barkley leads USC on this really long drive at the end of the game to win, which was super impressive for a freshman. USC actually ended up losing four games that year. That was Pete Carroll's last year, and that was kind of where their downfall started. But that game in week two was a classic. Um, Let's see. Oh, 2010. Auburn versus Clemson. That was a classic. Clemson was was pretty good that year. That was like Dabo Sweeney's first year as head coach. Crazy to think about. He was the interim the year before they gave him the job, so 2010 was his first official year. Auburn, remember, this was kind of a coming out party for Cam Newton, and we realized, okay, Auburn looks pretty legit. That game went to overtime. Pretty good game. 2010, also, I remember Michigan State and Notre Dame. That was a classic basically just for the ending you know it's a back and forth game that was the game where I, I can't remember if it was overtime or just the end of regulation but Notre Dame or sorry Michigan State lines up for a field goal either to win or tie it but they fake it throw a touchdown pass and they win a walk-off touchdown to beat Notre Dame that was a classic that was also Brian Kelly's first year at Notre Dame 2011 Oklahoma at Florida State. This was a classic. Um, I remember watching this game with my dad. 
we Florida State was finally for the first time you know in a while ranked up there I think Oklahoma was number one Florida State was number five and it was a great game the Florida State defense showed up this was more of a defensive battle and Florida State's starting quarterback EJ Manuel went down I think maybe the very start of the third quarter or maybe it was before halftime I don't quite remember and then Clint Trickett comes into the game little tiny quarterback son of the offensive line coach he ended up um, transferring to West Virginia and had a pretty good year there to end his career but this game he comes in and throws a touchdown pass on like third and 18 to Rashad Green the first big play of Rashad Green's career as a Seminole who went on to be probably one of the best receivers we've ever had and we lost that game because Oklahoma then drives down the field after that and Landry Jones throws this long touchdown to Kenny Stills and that's kind of how Oklahoma wins but it was just such a fun matchup seeing Florida State Oklahoma at night in Doak just a really fun non-conference matchup and then another favorite of mine that comes to mind is uh, in 2013 Georgia and Clemson that was a barn burner classic game with tons of NFL talent on the field you got to think I think it was like the first play of the game for Georgia. Gurley busts like a huge touchdown run down the sidelines. Um, Todd Gurley, this was his sophomore year. And then like two plays after that, Taj Boyd hits Sammy Watkins for this crazy catch and touchdown run. And that was just a back and forth game that Clemson ended up winning. And I remember as a Florida State fan thinking, wow, Clemson's going to be really tough to beat this year. Now, two days later, Florida State beats Pitt. I was at that game with my dad for Jameis Winston's debut, and we end up going into Clemson that year and, and thumping them. It's the only time we've won at Clemson that I can remember, in my lifetime really, that I can remember outside of like the 90s and stuff. So that was a classic game. I love, just absolutely love, these non-conference matchups between highly ranked teams. I hope we get more of them. And I kind of hope we go away from these neutral site games so that we can have more of these memories, more of these classic games, because I absolutely love them. But uh, anyway, that's it for me today. Let's see what happens in the next week, and let's see where the conversation goes regarding playoffs, regarding conference supremacy. And I'll be back with you guys next week after I take a trip to Charlottesville. Thanks for listening.